good evening. Depending where you are on this rotating planetary globe in relation to that brilliant star out there, only 93 million miles away, don't get burned. This morning is going to be a very, very interesting show because we're going to do a lot of speculating. People love to speculate. Oh, they go on the Internet and they read something and then they, you know, tell 15 or 20,000 friends. And it's like, oh, they've just found truth with a capital T. I mean, we really are working on getting the right person or persons, uh, epistemologists or people with an epistemological background. Epistemology is not mysterious. It's merely the science of how do we know what we think we know. And there is a science to it. Otherwise, we'd all be dead. We would not be here. We would not be tonight 7 billion plus or minus people on the planet unless there was a science of how do we separate noise, nonsense, lies, prevarication, advertising, from the truth. And what is the truth anyway? I mean, are there varying degrees of truth? Yes, because truth is in the eyes of, as we really now found out these days, the beholder. So we're working on that show. We'll, we'll do more than one, depending upon what, what comes of that. Well, tonight is kind of like a case in point. When you reach the end of the show in the next three hours, what will you know? What will you think is maybe possibly true? How will you go about checking it out? How will you cross-check it? Because I'm going to make some, I'm, I'm pretty sure for most people, absolutely outrageous statements tonight. I mean, really off-scale. And I don't know whether my guest, uh, Daniel Pinchbeck, is going to agree with me or disagree. That's one of those things where, you know, when, when you do a show like this, it's not like being a lawyer. Remember that old cliche about lawyers? How a lawyer never asks a question that he doesn't know the answer to, or he shouldn't, or she shouldn't. Well, being someone who sits in this chair behind this mic, you know, a couple times a week, part of the fun is asking questions or throwing out ideas that you have no idea whether your guests, guests or audience are going to agree or disagree. I mean, it's, it's kind of like, uh, you know, the years of living dangerously. Okay, we're going to start with a couple of news items at the top. Um, if you go to the other side of midnight.com, that's our URL, click on tonight's banner, which is right there under the uh, uh, presidential briefing. Scroll down just a little bit. The continuing conspiracies of Q. Who the heck is Q? Well, I presume a lot of you know, but for those that don't, that's kind of what we're going to be doing to, you know, this evening. We're, we're delving again. We did one other show a couple, three years ago uh, about Q. And at that time, I thought it was Roger Stone. Now, of course, I have some very different ideas. So we will bring you my ideas and Daniel's ideas. I mean, his, his well, well, we'll get into, you know, why I picked up the phone and called him because he's just written something really interesting and it just seemed appropriate, both in terms of content and timing. So tonight, we're doing a deep dive into Q. In the meantime, uh, you want to click on that banner. That will take you to the guest page. And then you want to click under that banner there on uh, Richard's items. That takes you directly to my fast links and radio pictures. Item number one, the Israelis seem to have come up with a drug 
which has cured in early clinical trials 30 cases out of 30 cases of COVID-19. And it was for ranging from moderate to severe, like in hospital, about to go on ventilators severe. And 29 got better like in three to five days. The worst case took a couple days longer, but everyone survived. Everyone is doing well. There's no long haul COVID symptoms that I'm able to, uh, to, to, to detect or find in doing a little search this afternoon. And what's really interesting, if you click on the story, it's another one of these repurposed drugs and you, you inhale it as a gas in a hospital setting and in three to five days you're cured. Now this is not a vaccine. This is something totally, totally different. This is a chemistry interacting with the patient and with the virus and it winds up killing the virus. And so far in the clinical trials, it's 100%. Now 30 people is not a lot of people. So there are two more stages in these trials. Um, but the uh, Israeli scientists who've been working on, on this for some time, and you can read all the details, of course, in the story, they are really excited because this, this is a breakthrough. This is described literally as a huge breakthrough because therapeutics are the way to go because therapeutics can be, are being made, can be made more of, can be shipped, can be you know, sent to hospitals, medical centers, trauma centers, whatever, this is this is a ray of light in a very dark tunnel. Okay, item number two. This is Black History Month, and I've been watching various people interviewed and, you know, asked who their favorite black heroes are. Well, item number two is, is my pick, uh, not only for her work, her body of work, which was brilliant, amazing, uh, over decades, but also the person herself, Cicely Tyson, uh, died a few days ago. And if you click on that story, you can you can see why she was someone to be admired, both in terms of her uh, acting ability as well as her character. A wonder of poise and punch, says the blurb at the top of the New York Times article. The actress dared to declare herself a moral progenitor taking on roles, I'm going to insert a word here, that only reflected the dignity of black women. And her range was extraordinary. Uh, Sounder and, and so many others. So, you know, have fun. Read, the, read that amazing article. And, um, you know, you will, you will feel better, I guarantee, uh, after you've read it. Because, again, in the darkness, there are always candles. And Cicely Tyson was a brilliant candle in the dark. Item number three. Uh, this is a, uh, a, a news story. It comes from uh, BBC. Uh, I thought I would pick, um, you know, a perspective from overseas because I think we here in the United States are a little too close to this to have any real objectivity. But this is a BBC overview for those of you who have been living under a rock on Mars for the last year, um, of what QAnon or the QAnon movement uh, is about. Now, it's an overview. It's a, basically an outline, but it'll give you some background. So when we get into our discussion tonight, you will not be reft 
of references. And um, I, I guarantee you, you're going to, some of you are going to get mad. Some of you are going to go, are, is, is he nuts again? And I have no idea how you're going to treat my guest, but I presume it will be when we open up the phone lines in the third hour. And I'll tell you, why don't I do that now? Why don't I give you the numbers so you can actually write this down? In the third hour, I'm sure a lot of you are going to have something you want to ask or say or, you know, uh, opinion on. Area code 917-889-8802. Our number is 917-889-8802. And so in hour number three, um, midnight here in the desert in New Mexico, land of enchantment, uh, we'll open the lines. And I, I know First of all, I know one person who is going to join us with some very uh, interesting um, uh, points of view. I can't tell yet whether he's going to be the you got to be kidding or oh, my God. But we'll find out. That's the fun of doing this. You don't know what's going to happen. Now, uh, my guest is Daniel Pinchbeck. He's an American author currently living. Well, it says here in New York, but I know He's hiding out in some beach in Mexico, and we might talk to him about that. He has a passion for understanding consciousness and how we can expand it, each of us, our own, to find out our truth. Dan is the author of Breaking Open the Heart, a psychedelic journey into the heart of contemporary shamanism. Um, He also wrote The Return of Quetzalcoatl, which was a 2012 book. Uh, published in September 2007. He is also a co-founder of Evolver, a lifestyle community platform that publishes Reality Sandwich, an online magazine centered on spirituality, philosophy, and activism. Uh, Daniel has also served as executive director of the Think Tank Center for Planetary Culture, which produced the Regenerative Society Wiki, His essays and articles on a variety of topics have been featured in the New York Times Magazine, Esquire, Rolling Stone, Art Forum, the New York Times Book Review, The Village Voice, and many, many others. And tonight, for his, I believe it's his third appearance, he is on the other side of midnight. Daniel, welcome back. Thanks, Richard. Thanks for having me. Do you prefer Daniel or Dan? I way prefer Daniel. (laughs) Okay, that's... Okay, that's kind of like I like Richard and not the other, uh, you know, acronyms or whatever. For sure. Okay, uh, let me do something that I rarely do, but I thought it was really important. This is from an essay that you wrote, uh, which got sent to me via one of those email thingies you you send around. A post-QAnon world, question mark. There was no storm, so now what? By Daniel Pinchbeck. So let me dip into this. This is kind of interesting. One side effect of Biden entering office is that it has dealt a shocking blow to the QAnon belief system, which hypnotized so many people. According to this popular narrative, there was going to be the Great Awakening and the storm, a military takeover of the United States before January 20th, 2021. Trump would remain in power as he ordered the arrest of something like 500,000 pedophiles and ritual Satanists among the ruling elites. This would include the Clintons, Obama, Tom Hanks, George Soros, 
and on and on. In a bizarre twist, QAnoners believe that this authoritarian coup was going to protect the Constitution and deal a death blow to the conspirators plotting a new world order slash one world slash Chinese communist takeover. Daniel, where do you want to begin? Uh, yeah, I mean, well, so, I mean, you know, as you mentioned, a lot of my work has been in the area of like consciousness, shamanism. Uh, my first book was on psychedelic shamanism, breaking open the head. I then wrote a book about prophecies and sort of the ind- indigenous worldviews, indigenous cosmologies, and, and sort of the understanding of a lot of different cultures around the world about the time that we're in is this prophetic transformation time. Um, I wrote another book called How Soon Is Now, which was um, kind of thinking about the consequences of the ecological crisis and then thinking about the types of changes we would have to make as a society to deal with it, you know, which, which we haven't been doing. You know, we're seeing climate change and species extinction and all this stuff getting worse. And yeah, I mean, and most recently I've tried to sort of sort through conspiracy theories, try to make some, you know, find some coherence for myself and hopefully for other people about what's happening. So I wrote a short book called uh, Conspiranoia. <laughs> and, good title. Good title. Right, thanks. And yeah, I mean, I mean, so, you know, in that book, I try to sort through. I'll tell you what, you know, let's start with the book because we'll, we'll, we'll get to QAnon because there's some amazing new data. I mean, really shocking, stunning. I can, you know, go on like that. So let's start with your book on conspiracies. Have you always kind of been curious, as I have, about conspiracies? Uh, sure. I, I mean, uh, I think it's pretty much many, many people are curious about conspiracies. But yes, I mean, you know, from John F. Kennedy's assassination to Martin Luther King to 9-11, you know, you, you always have to ask yourself, is there, is there a story, you know, under the surface? Yeah, I think the Kennedy assassination was my awakening because I lived through it. I remember vividly, you know, it's one of those things where you, uh, you know, in, in, emblazoned in your mind exactly where you were, what the furniture looked like, what the room looked like, what you were doing. I mean, it's just, you know, it's, 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 it's imprinted. Where were you when, when Kennedy was killed? I wasn't born yet. I was born in 66. Ah, so you're retro reflecting on a history that's come to you through media. In that case, yeah. And what did you find out? What was your conclusion? Uh, I mean, I, you know, honestly, I, I never, I mean, it's, it, the Kennedy assassination was never, has never been, I mean, I'm not like really, I, you know, I mean, there are people who get very fired up about, 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 that, but I, it's not really something that I've, I've pursued in depth. I mean, um, no, wait, 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 wait. History took a sharp turn mm-hmm. at that breakpoint in in the timeline. How could you not, doing a book on conspiracies, come to appreciate the reason we're here tonight, talking about what we're talking about, is because of Kennedy's murder? Yeah, I mean, it's a whole, a whole series of things. And it's just not when I wrote this new book last year, that wasn't where I started. I started with the theories and questions around origins of the virus and Bill Gates ah, okay. and, uh, you know, QAnon and a few other things. But I mean, yeah, I mean, it, you know, it, it does look as if, you know, the U.S., you know, parts of the U.S. government, you know, wanted to, you know, put Kennedy out of business and, um, 
What a lot of folks refer euphemistically these days as the deep state. Yeah, I mean, that's, yeah, I mean, it's it's, it's become a very popular term for sure. But it's very accurate because deep implies hidden and implies longevity. And, you know, for 70 years since the end of World War II uh, or even from the beginning when, when the CIA was created, we now know the CIA has been involved in all kinds of bizarre, illegal, you know, extra legal activities. You know, just look at the Church Commission and their results. So was it untoward to imagine, given that he said he was going to break the CIA into a thousand pieces, that if it was an inside job, if it was the deep state, it would have been as many, many, many researchers and authors have now claimed over, you know, 50 years or more, that it was, in fact, Kennedy's uh, murder by the deep state. Yeah, I just think that sometimes we use these terms and they end up being a little bit more obfuscating. But 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 sure, I mean, uh, it definitely feels that there were elements in the intelligence community uh, who may have been allied with Johnson, who um, you know decided that that Kennedy had to go because he posed a threat to to the workings of power. Mm. Let's go back a moment here. Language. I mean, I'm a writer. You're a writer. Words have meaning. I think it was um, uh, Mark Twain who said something like, you know, comparing the the wrong word to the right word is like comparing the lightning bug to the lightning. And so words matter. Words are powerful. They they can be mightier than the sword. They can excite whole populations to think and act a certain way. So where do you think we've gone off the rails in terms of terminology like deep state? Um, yeah, I mean, it, it's just, um, I mean, um, it, it's a very, it's a, just a very simplistic trends and, um, you know, there's a lot of different factions. It's also been kind of weaponized by the right wing. Um, you know, whereas, you know, the right wing has also, you know, has its own agendas and uses power in, 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 in particular ways. I, I don't know. It's just, I have a little, I, I, yeah, I feel it's been a little bit, um, become a little bit of a catchphrase. But don't memes kind of get embedded in consciousness? There are different deep states. I mean, look at, you know, if 9-11 was an inside job, right. you know, which I think it probably was, you know, that was a particular group of conspirators. I mean, you had, um, you know, Dick Cheney and uh, Rumsfeld that were part of Project for New American Century, and they had published uh, papers in this think tank where they'd said that, you know, the, the U.S. Uh, needed to be able to go into the Middle East to access, to, you know, the oil reserves of the Middle East. And the only way they were going to be able to do that is if there was something like a Pearl Harbor level incident uh, that, that changed popular opinion and gave them, you know, the opportunity. You know, so, so, you know, Cheney and Rumsfeld had authored this, you know, several years before, um, you know, before 9-11. And, you know, it does seem quite plausible that, um, you know, they they, they either engineered that or allowed it to happen or, you know, it's it's also we have to be careful. So, you know, it's like, as you say, it's like we don't know in a lot of these areas. So how do we pick, you know, pick and choose from the possibilities and the options without without you know, become, becoming too certain, you know, which is, I think is part of the problem with what happened with a lot of the QAnon people. They had a lot of feelings about what was going on in the world and those, they had thoughts about it. They had some evidence and their feelings got sort of mingled up 
in, in what they when what they wanted you know to, to 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 be the case, and they went down kind of a rabbit hole, you know, and and maybe there was also some manipulation, ah. you know, maybe a psyop or disinformation uh, effort to uh, pull pull them into that rabbit hole. Hmm. Okay, so uh, Kennedy, you came down basically on inside job, gotten out of the way because he was going to interfere. In a major way. I'm not really focused. I haven't really been focusing on Kennedy, but that is, I think, what seems most likely. But I'm, okay. I'm not. All right. I, but, I understand. You know. But the one thing I really try to do a lot with my work is not, you know, overstep what I, you know, so, you know, I think that there are some things we know. And there's some things that I know that are really unusual that most people, you know, maybe, I mean, I, for instance, I've had a lot of shamanic experiences. So I know, I know there's, you know, psychic realities and paranormal abilities and, you know, other levels of consciousness and dimensions. Like I'm actually pretty certain about that, but I, I don't know how particular conspiracies were orchestrated. And, and therefore I, I prefer to be really clear that, you know, that, you know, if I'm, if I'm just having a theory or an idea or a possibility, you know, to try to try, and I, and I, you know, I think we have to really always be, be treaded, particularly now because things have gotten so murky. Well, we and, have to approach like any science. Remember one of Hoagland's laws, all science is approximate. Which in the corollary would be all politics is approximate. Like the thing that always intrigued me about the QAnon thing was just on the on the face of it to accuse an entire segment of the political class of being satanic child eating molesters it just seemed to me like it was so overblown because there's not one example. There's not one piece of data that says this particular person on this particular date was found guilty of doing this horrible set of acts that are, you know, a huge group of people are being accused of. And I, I, I've wondered, how do people get so disconnected from something as basic as, where's the evidence? Yeah, that, that's, that's an interesting question. I mean, um, um, yeah, I mean, I mean, well, you know, there's sort of, uh, obviously, there was Pizzagate and the emails, you know, the uh, the, the Clinton and Podesta emails uh, that people glommed onto, you know, and those emails, some of them did seem a little bit strange, uh, but there was nothing, you know, that, that led to any certainty about, about, you know, anything in terms of there being some kind of ritual satanic cult. Yeah, some of the things I'm going to talk about tonight and speculate freely on, I am incredibly humble that it's not maybe the answer it could be part of the answer it could be a fragment of the answer it kind of satisfies my bump which says things are not as they appear but i found from my work with nasa particularly in terms of you know the the the, uh, apollo missions and what's there i mean i was present at jpl when a disinformative meme was born as the counterpoint to what we now know, because we have tons of evidence, photographic, mathematical, you know, radio, all kinds of stuff, that there's extraordinary stuff on the moon that NASA's hidden hiding from us for over 50 years. Because I was there at the birth of the meme that said we never went to the moon. So my analysis is that our culture is divided into segments, including a segment that are willing to look outside the box, that are willing to ask uncomfortable questions, 
And in the era of the Internet, since you can research anything if you really keep at it and know how, the only way to keep secrets anymore is, is you can't. So you have to hide them under a ton of noise and give people false conspiracies to follow, which then protects the real conspiracy, the real undercurrent of what's going on. What do you think? Yeah, I, mean, I think I think there's some truth to that. I mean, I mean, part of what you know, like, um, what makes me sad, I suppose, is it feels like people have been um, manipulated to, you know, not really be able to to deal with um, maybe the, the the more glaringly obvious realities. I mean, you know, we do know that you know over the last you know year, a small group of billionaires have become exponentially, you know, even more wealthy, whereas most people are now, you know, suffering, um, you know, and um, yeah, you know, so, 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 you know, there are, there are, there are really severe injustices in American society that, um, you know, you'd think that everybody except for maybe the 50 people who possess all that wealth would agree upon uh, as a target, you know, of, of their anger. Uh, and I feel, in a way, the um, uh, the way these conspiracies are played out and manipulated and, and distorted uh, confuse people, and so they don't they don't recognize that they have shared interests. So then you have you know working class people who are like you know of different races and cultures hating on each other, uh, when when really you know people who are you know suffering from wealth inequality at the level that we're now dealing with should be united uh, to change the system, uh, you know, on some deeper level. So the way we get away from solving those fundamental problems that affect all of us, except for those 50 people, is those 50 people create, this is a model, a series of distractions so gripping, so emotional, so in lockstep with a lot of people's inbred suspicions and prejudices but in the wrong direction, that it becomes an elegant distraction from what they really should be uniting to accomplish in terms of, you know, a more perfect union. Yeah, I, I, that's pretty much what I think, too. Yeah. Hmm. OK, so you say you came around into writing this book on conspiracies. By the way, do we have a link so we can plug it? Uh, well, it's on Amazon. I mean, people could look up. Conspiranoia and and my name, uh, Pinchbeck, and it would pop up on Amazon. I, I don't have a, a link on it at the moment. Okay, so is it, I think I get is it is it linked to your website? Uh, no, I mean it would be on Amazon. The book's available on Amazon right now. Oh, okay, all right, all right. Anyway, so you say you got into this through the COVID nineteen doorway. Uh, we we've got probably a minute till the bottom of the hour, so let's set up a tease. What was the most interesting? contradiction about the whole COVID-19 pandemic that, that reached out to you? Uh, I don't know about a contradiction, but I mean, I mean, to me, it seems overwhelmingly, you know, likely probable that, uh, you know, it was, it was inured in a lab in Wuhan. And it was part of a program that, you know, the U S government had also uh, supported to the tune of like $5 million. And, um, you know, the, the scientific community, uh, rallied around this idea that it was a, a, a you know a natural virus and couldn't have been man-made, and 
you know, meanwhile, the, the, the woman, the Chinese woman who headed the virology lab at Wuhan was called bat lady and her whole career was, you know, taking coronaviruses from bats and adding uh, disease elements like HIV and SARS to them to make them more communicable to humans. And a bunch of other virologists a few years ago had said that, that this is a really dangerous research and, all, and it has no real benefit, but just creating a new non-natural risk. Hmm. Okay, because some of that I agree with you on, and some of it that um, I'm, I'm going to I'm going to offer an alternative model tonight. Um, I'm having a little problem with something I'm trying to do here. So, you know, every time you rush to rely on computers, <laughs> they wind up, you know, kind of uh, uh, you know biting you in the you know where. So I'll tell you what, let's do this. Let's do this. Okay. No, that's not going to work. All right. All right. Here we go. <clears throat> My guest this morning is Daniel Pinchbeck, thinker, seeker, writer, researcher, and out-of-the-box investigator. I mean, conspiracy theory is part of the common culture now. But how do we tell which conspiracies are true? And which conspiracies are conspiracies? You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. We shall return. from the beginning, uh, if you look back through English history, the common law and equity both developed under different systems. Right. The common law was originally always the, the original system of law which was biblically based. And it was handed down orally from person to person over the years because there wasn't any, any printing press or writing until the Middle Ages, right? Mm -hmm. Whereas equity, however, what would happen is the common law at that time was extremely strict. Very, very harsh. <laughs> and most people fail to, to realize the, uh, the strictness. For, and I know, for example, um, one criminal charge sometimes can take four or five pages to lay it out of everyone. And if you missed a, a, a dotting an I, you, the, the guy could have the charge thrown out. So what developed was eventually people who thought that the common law was too harsh would petition the king for redress. And then the queen, king, I should say, or queen, would determine if they were going to have mercy on him and what they were going to do. Um, sometimes they were thrown to the wind and said, too bad, you're out of luck. Other times they would get redress. And what would happen as more and more people started going to the king, he couldn't handle the workload. So he appointed it to the chancellor. Mm -hmm. And that he started doing it, which then became the court of chancery or equity. And of course, a number of principles developed in equity, I think there's 12 or 13 of them now, um, that developed over the years where it 
basically was a uh, a separate form of, of law based on fairness and various principles that developed parallel to the common law. And then early in the 1900s, they were fused into one court because you had different courts, common law and you had equity. And they fused them into one court where the same court would apply both systems of law. And if there was a conflict, and only if there was a conflict, the common law would prevail. Hi, I'm David Kevin Lindsay from Canada, and I would urge everybody to be able to support the other side of the news. With the news media all over the world essentially promoting the government narrative on virtually every issue out there, everybody needs an alternative source of accurate, truthful information. And the other side of the news provides that information, that source of information from a variety of speakers all over the world with personal knowledge and experience that they can share with everybody in over 160 countries that they're involved and that they go to, to show everybody in the world what they are doing to support and encourage everybody else to also stand up for freedom issues throughout the world. I would urge everybody on a regular basis to listen and support the other side of the news. Welcome back, everybody, on this Saturday night, February 6, 2021. My guest this morning is Daniel Pinchbeck, and we're discussing conspiracies. Daniel has done a book on conspiracies, and he entered through the COVID-19 doorway. So uh, let me ask you this, Daniel. Um, You and I agree that this thing was engineered. Where we disagree, and we'll get into this later on in the morning, is that it was China that created it. Our model, me and uh, a very famous astrobiologist in Britain named Chandra Wickramasinghe, believe this thing actually came from space. And there we bifurcate again because Chandra thinks it's natural, meaning space is filled with viruses and microorganisms in stasis waiting for a fertile planetary environment to flourish on his work going back 50 60 70 years totally supports that i mean totally astonishing work that has never really seen the light of day but um the model that i'm in favor of is that this was not part of a natural background which we have talked about on several shows of organisms that are not only throughout the solar system, but throughout the galaxy itself. Very long, interesting story. But that this was basically sent to us specifically by intelligent entities upstairs in the solar system that want to do us harm. And this has become tremendously contentious because, of course, even if researchers or you know um, investigative reporters, whatever, are willing to go the it was made route, they really kind of freak out at the idea 
that it wasn't made here. What do you think? Um, I mean, I haven't um, examined the ideas that it came from space. Um, so I have no basis to really say anything. I mean, as, as I said, you know, my understanding, which in, in, you know, in, in the book and Conspiranoia, it's footnoted and, and the, you, know, you can actually look at this, uh, the, the woman, I think her name was she, yeah. Uh, thing. Uh, and, and, you know, she, she was leading Wuhan's uh, virology lab, uh, which was, I think the only one of its kind in China. Right. And specialty was bat coronaviruses. And so for 20 years or something, she'd been engineering, she was doing gain of function research where you take these coronaviruses and you splice in elements from HIV or SARS and, and you make them uh, more communicable to humans. And the ostensible reason for this, for doing this, is that, you know, you're learning about, you know, path, 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 you know pathogenic things that might happen in the future so that, you know, society is, is prepared. But as I said, a lot of virologists had begun to question this and had said that actually the main thing that this was doing is creating a, a new non-natural risk in the environment. And in fact, in 2016, they stopped gain-of-function research for a while, or, or at least the U.S. did, uh, but then um, a, f- a year or two later, uh, they started to fund it again. Um, and the other thing is that China, um, there's an article from this magazine, Defense One, uh, that talks about how um, China had decided a number of years ago that the future of war was biowarfare, um, that essentially was an asymmetric form of warfare. They so were never going to catch up it's like the U.S. and Russia in terms of nukes. They began to see that, uh, you know, engineering viruses, other types of bioweapons uh, was a way to win uh, the asymmetric warfare of the future. Uh, and they specifically talked about how you could make uh, bioweapons or, or weaponized viruses that could target particular ethnic groups or populations. Um, you know, there was, uh, you know, around, uh, you know, the year before the coronavirus appeared, uh, there were a number of Chinese uh, biologists who were working in labs in Canada uh, who were caught um, smuggling uh, really, really dangerous, like the most dangerous viruses uh, back to China. Um, then also there was a very strange case, which I, I think is only tangentially connected in, in terms of, um, you know, showing, you know, kind of China's interest in, in, in these types of asymmetric warfare. But there was this guy, Charles Lieber, who was head of the chemistry department at Harvard and a nanotechnologist. And he was busted. Uh, it turns out he had a set, he'd been set up a secret laboratory in Wuhan and he was getting paid something like $50,000 a month. Uh, and it was very strange because he was somebody who had um, tremendous success in the U S and, you know, his papers were published. He was well-funded, you know, millions of dollars of funding head of head of his division at Harvard. And yet he'd set up the secret lab in Wuhan. And the focus of his work is something called um, uh, neural lace. So essentially, well, wait, call, call, call what? Neural, neural lace. Neural lace. Yeah, it's like an injectable form of nanotechnology that um, can sort of coat the uh, brainstem and actually control uh, the behavior of somebody from within their brain. Um, wow. So, yeah. That's so what did he do? Just sell out to the highest bidder? Or did he have a political you know, perspective on who should run the world? 
That's a good question. I, mean, I think that, you know, unfortunately, and this is why, I mean, I have to say, you know, I'm, I'm kind of um, at this point quite pessimistic uh, about the near future, particularly of, an, of like post-industrial civilization. I mean, the problem is that, you know, we have um, the capacity to create very destructive types of technologies. And Well, hang on, hang on. You know, Elon Musk has said that AI is a thousand times more destructive than, you know, the H-bomb. Yeah, I think H, uh, um, AI is something that we should definitely be worried about. But but I think what we're seeing is that technology, I mean, um, not exactly it has a will of its own, but, you know, it, there's a seduction. I mean, just, you know, look at the building of the atom bomb and Oppenheimer and those guys. You know, if, if, if you see the capacity to do something for a certain type of mind, uh, you know, and, and, you know, maybe some people who are, you know, they're on the spectrum of, you know, socio, sociopathology or psycho, psychopathy uh, or Asperger's or something. You know, there's, there's an interest in doing something, um, you know, just for the sake of, 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 of doing it in a weird way. Um, kind of like an amoral uh, impetus. Uh, and then also, you know, with this neural lace, um, yeah, here's one of the papers on it. There's a, from Harvard. It's called Mesh Electronics, a New Paradigm for Tissue-Like Brain Probes. Hmm. Um, it, um, you know, it, it does also have potential medical uses. Like if you had somebody who was paralyzed, you might be able to, or had a brain injury, you might be able to, you know, connect in some way directly so they would get their motor functions back. But, but it also has, you know, you can imagine if you were a dictator, you know, in China, and you wanted to stop, you know, future protests in Hong Kong and so on, if you could actually inject something that controlled the brains of protesters from within, you know, that would be uh, game over. Mm. A lot of people that are involved at the cutting edge of technology, science and technology, I mean, they're in it because I know a lot of them. They're in it, Dan, because they want to conquer the unknown. They want to do something nobody else has done for the first time. It's a challenge. It's an ego thing. It can result in, you know, ac- uh, you know, ac- accruing rewards in the material world, whatever, whatever. A-, a classic example of that, though, I think, is Robert Oppenheimer. Because remember, Robert Oppenheimer was looking at the creation of the atomic bomb, you know, at the, at, at the Manhattan Project here in New Mexico, as this extraordinary technical challenge. And it was only after Hiroshima and you know, a couple hundred thousand people in those landscapes, those those desolate lunar landscapes, that he he turned. He he realized that he had been segregating his own identity to where he was not thinking like okay. a human. He didn't extrapolate what this would, and it took the example, right in your face example, of dropping those two bombs on uh, Hiroshima and Nagasaki to turn him into someone who ultimately lost his Q clearance because he opposed Teller. He opposed the H-bomb. He opposed the use of the atom bomb. He became the leading proponent of what the God have we done. Remember his great line when, when, the, when the bomb here was detonated in August of 45? I have become death, the destroyer of worlds, right from the Vedas. So people are not, they're not evil they're almost mono uh, frequency in terms of bandwidth. They don't expand their humanity unless they're really hit in the face with the implications of what they do. 
Um, yeah, that's kind of, yeah, I mean, that, that's exactly what I was kind of saying. They're, they're just um, Asperger-ish or, they're, or they're get, they get fascinated by the technical challenge itself. Um, you know, but the problem we have as a, as, as a species is that our ethical and moral um, kind of qualities have not developed as rapidly as our, um, you know, destructive powers. Oh, by no means. Absolutely by no means. So let's go back to the COVID-19 thing. You and I and a lot of other people seem to be in agreement this thing was manufactured. How come the mainstream, the vast cross-section of virologists and experts and ethicists and medical, you know, uh, in, 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 in the field of medicine, how come they're all in agreement about the bat to something to human model? Um, yeah, well, I mean, I mean, I think, you know, when I started my, you know, my book writing and I wrote a book about psychedelics, I mean, psychedelics were totally rejected by the mainstream, um, and the establishment completely believed there was no value to them. And, and now we're finding tremendous, you know, applications in mental health. I mean, they're discovering they're like, you know, what, what people already knew kind of in the early sixties that they're, you know, tremendously powerful tools for, healing, you know, addictions and, and curing depression and, and, you know, dealing with post-traumatic stress disorder. Um, so that's, you know, well, I know year, gonna... years ago I worked with a, with a, uh, uh, psychotherapist in California and she was involved in some trials of a drug called ecstasy MDMA and was the first to really see astonishing, uh, positive psychological results. You know, the, Standard form of therapy is you talk, you talk, you talk, you pay, you pay, you pay, you talk some more, you pay some more, and it goes on for life. Um, this was a way to short circuit so that people in like one weekend were really transformed. I, I, I watched this happen, and the federal government made MDMA a Schedule One drug right up there with heroin. How did that happen? Um, yeah, I mean, I mean, it's not to the benefit of pharmaceutical companies, you know, if, if there's a substance people just take once or twice and it cures them, uh, whereas they, their, their profit, um, you know, particularly if it's not even patentable, whereas if you have, if you have substances that they have to take for their whole lives, uh, maintenance doses every week, or every day, uh, you know, then, then obviously it, it, it provides a huge profit center. So um, you're proposing another deep state corporate state pharmaceutical state which basically no 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 i I think capitalism has has an automatic tendency um you know corporations in themselves have to compete to survive in in a game that we created called the stock market right and the the basic rule of that game is they have to maximize shareholder value and 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 financial profit Mm -hmm. Uh, and therefore they you know it's almost like a robot i mean they're just going to do that so, you know, if that means that you have to evade, you know, ecological restrictions uh, or corrupt legislation or, you know, kind of. Yeah, like, but you do that by paying off a lot of politicians to basically or, write the laws that you want that will benefit your company. Or suppress cures in favor of, you know, drugs that don't really work, but keep people in an artificial state for their whole lives. You know, it, there's just a logic to to a, to a you know profit-seeking corporation. It's going to have to maximize profit just to survive on its own. I, but I, but all, all, when I was bringing up this whole example, was simply to point out the establishment is often very very wrong about very very important things. Uh, and um, when it comes to something like the origins of COVID-19, 
there's a, there's a lot of reason why if you're part of the scientific and academic establishment, you don't want it to be you know understood publicly you know for the public that this was an engineered a botched disaster of an engineered virus um, because you know there's all this research and biotechnology and millions and millions of dollars of grants you know academic grants corporate grants I mean the whole industry you know people might turn against it popular opinion might might start to question whether this type of um, activity is, is good for, for, for us as a, as a well, society. We, we did decades ago, after the Church Commission, we literally banned internationally chemical and biological weapons and research, and the only research allowed was defensive. In other words, if some ex-nation state attacked us, there had to be a research program to figure out what to do prophylactically in anticipation of that, you know, someone using bio warfare or chemical warfare, whatever. Is this how we, the U.S. government, wound up sending like several billion dollars to China to research these coronaviruses? I don't think it was several billion dollars. The figure that I saw was five million dollars. Oh, five million. And, okay. Yeah. That's that's but, nothing. That's that's coffee money. Yeah, you can't do anything money. for five million. Yeah. Um, but, uh, yeah, I mean, I mean, I guess, you know, that well, would be another question. Let me ask it. Let me ask it a different way. You have arrived at the conclusion, as I have, that COVID-19 is a manufactured, engineered uh, weapon. How did you get there? What 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 set of paper trails did you follow that led you to that evidentiary conclusion? Yeah, I mean it's all in the uh, this short book. Well, I mean, tell look- us. Yeah, I mean I'm looking I hate right people who come I'm- on and just say, "Oh, read my book, please, Daniel. Don't do that." I'm looking, for instance, at a Nature magazine article okay. from uh, 2015. Engineered that virus stirs debate over risky research. Uh, an experiment that created a hybrid version of a bat coronavirus. No, wait, what are you What are you reading from? It's a Nature. Magazine article from 2015. Okay. About it. It's about the same woman in Wuhan, an engineered bat virus that she made, which has stirred debate over risky research. That's just as I was saying before, the virus that she created took elements from SARS and spliced it into a bat coronavirus right. in order to communicable to humans. So wait a minute. You're saying that the community flagged this as a potential problem in 2015? And yet, when we're confronted with the reality, nobody in academia wants to say she did it. Yeah, I mean that seems to be what's that's, happening. That's wow. I mean, talk about hypocrisy. Talk about forgetting history. Talk. I mean, fifteen, you know, fifteen to twenty. Oh, that's a, that's just five, five years is nothing. How come the people in the field have forgotten that there were papers looking at this and warning of dangers? I don't know. I don't have an answer to that. How do you address it in the book? I, I mean, I just explore it as, as, I, as I said. Now you can look at the trail that that there, you know that that's what she does. Is she creates, uh, she takes coronaviruses from bats in Wuhan, and she engineers them so that they're more communicable to humans. And a bunch of virologists warned a number of years ago that was a really bad idea. Uh, and yet the research continued, and um, you know we had we had this virus escape from from this lab as far as I can imagine. Hmm. 
So if they were warning the community and this individual, what was the point of her research? I mean, if everybody knew about it. It couldn't be top secret Chinese military research because, you know. As I just said, the ostensible, the ostensible uh, reason is, is to, to actually prepare for a future threat that might emerge in, in, you know, as a natural risk. Um, you mean in nature you have these crossovers and you need to be prepared in case those happen, having nothing to do with weaponization? Exactly. Okay. So that's how they sell SAV, S-A-L-V, their moral conscience. Oh, this is not secretly preparing for using this stuff. This is just to prepare us in case somebody else uses this stuff, right? Yes, exactly. But it's so easy then to pervert that research or in the, in the common parlance to weaponize it. And you're thinking but- that's what happened in Wuhan. So there's an article from this magazine, Defense One, mm-hmm. in 2019, August, called Weaponizing Biotech, How China's Military is Preparing for a New Domain of Warfare. And according to this article, a number of years ago, the People's Army, Liberation Army in China, decided that biology was the future you know, of warfare, asymmetric warfare. Uh, they wrote a paper. Yeah, hang on, hang on, hang on, hang on. Are 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 the Chinese signers of any treaties that forbid this? Because I, I imagine some years ago, I seem to remember there was a big brouhaha in the 70s, and a lot of nation states basically signed on to a treaty that forbid this, including us. Uh, I don't know, actually. I don't know. Um, that's you know. Um, but I mean, according to this article, and I think the defense one is, is a a magazine of the U S defense establishment. Um, let's see. China's national strategy of military civil fusion has highlighted biology as a priority. Um, biology is among seven new domains of warfare discussed in the 2017 book. Um, modern biotechnology development is gradually showing strong signs characteristic of an offensive capability. Um, and in the 2017 edition of Science and Military Strategy, they debuted a section about biology as a domain of military struggle, mentioning the potential for new kinds of biological warfare to include specific ethnic genetic attacks. Oh, now that's interesting. We got about four minutes to the top of the hour. Have you been struck like I've been struck? And that, that, that well, there's there's two levels of being struck on this. One is this this COVID-19 pandemic is attacking and killing people of color, Blacks, Native Americans, Indonesians, Far East Asian, you know, Latinos, far more, like three to four to one compared to white people. And as I'm looking at this, the mainstream again is saying, well, that's because all these people are in these, you know, essential worker professions where they have to interact with the public, and that's how they're getting it. I have been wondering from day one, Daniel, was this virus designed to wipe out those people? Uh, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I, once again, I, when I, if I don't know something, I, I just, you know, particularly when it's this sensitive. Um, I mean, it may also be that uh, a lot of those people are poor, 
and they're not getting, you know, very good nutrition or sources of vitamin D and vitamin C. They're eating more like sort of, um, you know, supermarket, um, you know, or fast food products. Um, Do you know if there's anybody doing studies to figure it out? Because there has to be an answer. It's scientifically approachable. Is it genetic? Is this a virus targeted to those genomes? Or is it just happenstance of culture and background and, you know, lack of medical care and lack of infrastructure from, you know, a medical society in this country, et cetera, et cetera? I don't, I, as far as I know, there's, there, those studies aren't being done, but I'm you know, not an expert in all the studies that are being done. Hmm. Don't you think we should find out? Um, yeah, I mean, you know, so, you know, e- even though I just read that thing from Defense One and, you know, it does seem that China was, was pursuing it. So it is possible, you know, it, you know, and once again, we're, this is such a problematic area because we're in such an area of hypothesis and conjecture and so on. Um, well, I warned everybody this was going to be a wildly speculative program. So, you mm-hmm. know, speculate. That's what we do here. We speculate with evidence if we have evidence. Um, yeah, so I mean, you know, it would I mean, be interesting to me, to find- uh, sorry to interrupt, but to me, the stats themselves are stunning. How can you explain certain, you know, racial groups being three, four times more likely to die than there? I mean, there are white people working in supermarkets. There are white people who pick up the garbage that, you know, repair your phone line that, you know, deliver your mail. Um, why is there this disparity? And it's like one of those things where nobody wants to talk about it because it's the forbidden, oh, my God, it's a racially targeted yeah. weapon. In other words, how could a natural evolved virus leaping between species only target people of color preferentially? Yeah, I, I, as I said, I don't, I don't know enough about that. I mean, another but aren't you curious? Another thing to point out about China, which is very interesting, is apparently they, um, you know, they, they they very quickly locked down domestically, but they continued, um, you know, foreign flights around the world, and they they actually pressured um, ambassadors from countries like Australia, New Zealand, to keep to keep taking their flights from uh, that that area, uh, that province, uh, and and from China in general, uh, even when they'd stopped their domestic flights. Okay, hold it there at the top of the hour. My guest this morning is Daniel Pinchbeck, and we're having what is called a wide-ranging discussion of conspiracies. We're talking about COVID-19, which will segue elegantly into QAnon, the Trump administration, and maybe what's really going on. Stay tuned. You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. We shall return. Thanks for listening to this exciting first hour. Now, the second and third hour of the show is available to Club 19.5 members only. Please support the show by subscribing to Club 19.5 and join our very interesting community. To do that, please visit the website, theothersideofmidnight.com, and click on the Join Club 19.5 link in the left-hand column. As a Club 19.5 member, you'll gain access to the rest of this show and all previous 350-plus shows that we have done. Now, recent Club 19.5 member archive recording have the commercials removed and the sound quality has been enhanced. You'll also receive a dedicated private podcast feed 
that contains these enhanced show recordings. And you'll be able to download the MP3 files directly from the archive if you prefer. As a Club 19.5 member, you'll also be the first to preview our new videos and reports. We'll be adding exclusive new features to Club 19.5 as we go forward. And boy, have we got some amazing things to tell you about in the coming weeks. So please support the show and don't miss all the exciting new things we have planned. I want to thank all our Club 19.5 members because without your guys' support, this show would not be on the air. Please help us continue growing the show by subscribing to Club 19.5 today. And when I say we really need you, we really need you. Over and out. Mm -hmm.